Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. And today we're going to do another whirlwind tour of the world, talking about everything from the Texas Democratic Party fleeing the state to Haiti to the executive orders and the competition and and the various IPOs. Mike, it's a pretty fun conversation. Yeah, I'll just say there's a lot happening in the world this week. And um, I think you had some really good takes on it. And uh, I think uh, I tried my best. Well, uh, thanks, Mike. I think you had some okay takes. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You did a ton of research. This is a really great episode. I I think everybody's really going to enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Hi, Mike. How's it going? It is going wonderful. I am back home this week. Welcome back. Which is nice. It was fun to get some travel back in, but uh, also really nice to be home again. Did you go on one of those plane things? (laughs) Yeah, it was like this big tube that uh, sort of took me up in the sky. It It was sort of unnatural, honestly. Yeah, and coming back from California, you probably did it at night, which is really disorienting. Uh, so <laughs> so it was my first time being away from, like, my family for uh, several months. And, you know, I left, like, super early Tuesday morning, right after the holiday, and I wasn't scheduled to get back until Friday night, well after the kids were in bed. It was just, you know, it was, it was tough in a lot of ways, as much as it was a, a great trip and, and a productive trip as well. But I ended up moving my schedule around and switching to a Thursday night red eye to try to get home earlier. Yikes. Um, which, which turned out to be a great reminder of why I had implemented a no red eyes policy pre-pandemic. Uh, because sure enough, we get on the plane. It's like a midnight Pacific time takeoff. And uh, we sit down. They're, they're starting to, you know, make all the pre-flight announcements, everything else. And then they say, oh, give us 10 minutes. We're getting a mechanical issue indicator light. Oh, no. So they're working on it. They're working on it. Half an hour goes by. They can't figure it out. We deplane. Uh, we sit worst. in the airport for like two and a half more hours until eventually they had to like drive to, I don't know, we were at SFO, so maybe they drove to like San Jose to pick up this part, but there was like some issue where somebody was traveling from somewhere else with the part they needed to fix this plane. And so we ended up taking off at like 3 a.m. Pacific time, a.k.a. like 6 a.m. on the East Coast, and I was just a bit of a wreck uh, once I got home. Brutal. That's okay. That's okay. It's all in the past now. Well, welcome back, and it's a few days later now, um, so your times are probably adjusted and you're probably ready for an adult beverage. I sure am. And it's a very special one tonight, actually. The first ever, at least first ever for me, wine on News and Brews. What? <laughs> well, before before you get outraged. Uh, so <laughs> this, this is my outraged voice. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from Sipwell Wine Company. Uh, it's a woman-owned wine company from California's Central Coast, the founder is actually a friend of mine and therefore a, a friend of the show, of course. No kidding. But it's actually, it's quite wonderful. It comes in eight and a half ounce cans, like kind of the size of the original like Red Bull cans. And their wines are sparkling, uh, but they're can conditioned, meaning the bubbles are created naturally in the can as, they, as it ferments. That seems like science. So tonight I'm drinking the Rocksteady Sparkling Rosé and I have some feelings about it, Errol. Please do tell. So first of all, the can condition bubbles. 
it's basically tap dancing through my mouth and down my throat. <laughs> and then in, in terms of the flavor, it's basically like biting into a grapefruit that's stuffed with a peach that's stuffed with raspberries. That sounds it's like, delicious. It's like a fresh fruit turducken. So wait, grapefruit and what? Grapefruit stuffed with a peach stuffed with raspberries. I'm hungry. Also, on top of all that, it's 13% alcohol. <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll do our best throughout this show. <laughs> or maybe this will be our best show. <laughs> um, well, it's it's hard for me to match that. I don't have any friends that I know of that own wineries. I am, uh, once again, going local. And, you know, it's a good thing that this is happening over audio because I was at the park earlier picking up my kids. Uh, and then we went to the park. And so I am a hot, sweaty mess. So I, when I looked in my fridge, I definitely went for the Sun's Out, Hops Out Session IPA by the Solace Brewing Company, which yeah. is uh, headquartered in Sterling, Virginia. And it's, it's honestly one of my favorite summer beers. I'm not an IPA all the time kind of guy, but you know, I also, my, my wife accuses me of not having taste buds. So IPA is actually good for me because they're, they tend mm -hmm. to be a little bit stronger on the taste. But honestly, when I drink this beer, all I think is, so last July 4th, I had one of these in my hand, picture this, both kids, including the then three month old are sleeping maybe she was five months, they were napping and I was sitting outside with my feet in a kiddie pool, drinking this beer, reading a book with a cowboy hat on out in front of my house Beautiful. in Adams Morgan, DC. When I drink this beer, that's what comes to mind. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think the vibe of this show may be a little bit different than that, but depending on how, how much of this wine I get through, maybe we'll be right there. I mean, I was trying to give you like a little bit of a California... Well, I guess with the cowboy hat, it's more Texas, but summary vibe. Well, I think today, Mike, we're going to we're gonna do another whirlwind tour of the world. Last week's uh, episode seemed to be pretty popular with uh, the handful of listeners that we had. I'm just kidding. With everybody that we heard from, they, they really liked how we kind of went through the news. And so we're going to do that again. Because yeah, I think it's, it's also a good, um, a good moment to just call out you know, we, we did get some great feedback on last week's episode, as we have on several. Our email address for the show is in the show notes in the show description. So um, if you've got feedback or thoughts or things you want to share or, you know, in any direction, please share it with us. We love to hear it. We love to read it. Um, you know, leave a review on your platform of choice as well. But it's really fun to kind of have an emerging community around this show. Um, so, so keep it coming. Absolutely. So, Mike, what do you say? With that, let's, let's get jump to it. In. So we'll start in China this week. Okay. Uh, Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi Global launched an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange last Wednesday, raising $4.4 billion in the second largest IPO in the U.S. this year and one of the top 20 largest ever. Uh, it closed up on its first day of trading, bucking the trend of its competitors Uber and Lyft, which both fell immediately after listing. Uh, or so it seemed. Didi here is like, uh, like a barracuda eating the tasty snapper not knowing there's like a giant great white shark looking behind it. Uh, and the great white in this case is the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, so <laughs> so in, in the Chinese government, there is uh, an organization called the Cyberspace Administration of China. 
which in and of itself is just a beautifully 90s name. It's like they're regulating the information superhighway or something. Yes. But they are, they are a regulatory agency for, uh, for cybersecurity and, and tech companies in general. And they had warned Didi prior to its IPO to tread lightly in apparently vague terms. Uh, raising questions about, you know, its network security, the risk of sensitive user data being exposed by its mapping function. And so the Chinese government is basically like, you know, you're, you're supposed to save all that sensitive user data for us. What are you doing putting it out there where, where not us can find it? Yeah. Um, Didi, for its part, said, you know, thank you for your concerns, but we'll take the $4.4 billion. Uh, so then two days after the IPO, with, with most of America checked out for the 4th of July, the Cyberspace Administration says it's launching an investigation into Didi potentially violating data privacy and national security laws, removes it from all the app stores in China. Didi's share price drops by more than 30% over the next two trading days, and the Chinese government announces it will put out new rules limiting foreign stock listings and data transfers. They actually removed it from platforms? They did. They did from from the app stores. And I I think that was only in China, but still, it was was a pretty drastic move. I mean, that's a hugely... Like, Didi is like Uber plus Lyft in terms of its market share, right? In China, I mean, it's huge. Yeah, well, for a long time, Didi and Uber were basically the two players in China, and then they merged. So now they're basically the ballgame. Oh, wait, Uber and Didi merged in China? Yeah, so Uber now owns a significant stake in Didi. Oh, that's a layer of the onion I didn't know. Yeah, and this whole episode is interesting for a lot of reasons. It's not an isolated action. The government has been cracking down on Chinese big tech for some time. Um, maybe most notably, Jack Ma, who's the founder of Alibaba, which was, uh, by a pretty significant margin, actually the largest IPO in U.S. history. He then started a digital payments company called Ant Group, which was preparing to IPO in November of last year. In the run-up to that IPO, he made a speech criticizing the Chinese financial system. The IPO was canceled. And he actually then disappeared for three months. He um, disappeared. Disappeared. He has reappeared since then. The and is saying nice things about the CCP now? Is certainly being uh, quieter. Wow. Um, the crackdown now is hitting other tech giants too. Uh, so Tencent uh, has come into the crosshairs in recent days. And ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok, reportedly scrapped its own IPO plans yesterday after meeting with Chinese regulators. So, yeah. Errol, what, what do you think the Chinese government's trying to do here? I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that the Chinese government's, well, let's say the Chinese Communist Party, which in this case is one and the same with the Chinese government, is trying to exert control full stop. So that's control over its citizens. That's control over China-based companies. It's control over data. I, I feel like they've increased their sensitivity in this area recently because of a couple of things. One is that there's been more instances of non-Chinese country, non-China countries like the U.S. and India and some others basically saying, oh, wait, I don't want our data going to China. And so we actually are wary of, you know, these companies, may they be TikTok or others that are operating in the U.S. And so mm-hmm. and, and so Chinese government is in part seeing this as a slight, which they're very sensitive to on the global stage. I think in part they're legitimately 
concerned about the ability of these sort of this this communist capitalism or whatever they call it, it the success is predicated on the government actually having control and so when dd says thanks but no thanks they're like wait that's actually not how this works and so i think there was a signaling aspect to this too but the biggest point here i think mike is that there's this there's this phenomenon called data localization which i won't mm -hmm. bore people with but it's essentially the practice of making sure as i mentioned before that when they're our companies and organizations and, and even foreign governments that have people and operations in China, they want the data that those companies are collecting. I mean, Didi is a, a ride-sharing company, but they're also a data company. I mean, the, the volume of data that they are collecting is massive. Mike, yeah. you used to work in this space. You know, like, it's absolutely, like, huge. And so that is, that's money. That data is money. That data is control. And they don't want that data leaving. And so they, they claim these sort of like, oh, for national security reasons, sometimes there's there's this really sinister, oh, we're just trying to protect people's privacy. And so we don't want the data to go elsewhere where we can't be sure that people's privacy is protected, um, which is super rich when, you know, that message is coming from the Chinese government. But I think that's mainly what's going on here. Yeah, it's interesting. There's been this talk for a long time about the decoupling of the internet, right, between right. the U.S. sphere and the Chinese sphere. And you've seen it in things like 5G technology. It kind of came to a bit of a head in the trade wars under Trump, Huawei and, and other companies being specifically targeted. But you had seen this sort of steady drumbeat of, of continued investment across borders. Right. right? You know, this, this was not the first IPO of a Chinese tech company in the U.S. even this year. And and now you're seeing a crackdown that really, I think, will put a damper on any of that investment tech, uh, investment activity and likely not just from the U.S., but if you're any foreign investor, you're going to be really wary about uh, Chinese companies. You know, even if you're a, you know, a venture capitalist with existing investments in Chinese companies, part of your investment thesis was based on an assumption of global expansion. And that may not be a realistic possibility anymore. Yeah. And, and I think there's this, there's this other thing that's happening in China right now where there's increasing pressure, especially around sort of the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd protests and things last year in the United States. There was just this sort of focus, not just on black lives, but on human rights in general. And I think... It had been brewing for some time with the sort of what the Chinese Communist Party and the government is doing in Xinjiang uh, to the Uyghur people. Some have called it genocide. Others have called it just yeah. sort of extreme autocracy. And so there's increasing focus on this and it makes the Chinese government like really, really mad. And so what's happening as a result is that companies that are operating in China, which is, oh, by the way, a massive market for their products, like the companies need China. If you're talking about global growth, it's potentially one of the biggest, if not the biggest consumer market in the world. So you need them, but, but basically the Chinese government is increasingly saying, yeah, you can have access to our behemoth market, but you can't utter the words Xinjiang, you can't talk about human rights. And oh, by the way, you have to abide by our data localization policies. Yeah, and, and how much of this do you think there is some legitimacy underlying these concerns of the Chinese government because they're not the only ones in the game of 
you know, hoovering up all the data from companies that happen to be operating within right. the borders or even outside, right? The most sophisticated offensive cyber capability in the world belongs to the United States government. And yeah. there's this book that I've mentioned, I think, but before the podcast era on this show called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Proroff, that is just a, she's a New York Times uh, reporter, and it's just a really interesting deep dive into the history of vulnerability in IT systems and the, the exploitation of vulnerabilities. And, you know, you have to assume that any vulnerability that the Chinese regulators were aware of in the systems of Didi would have been immediately discovered and exploited by U.S. intelligence agencies. Do you, do you think there is a legitimacy to those concerns? I think that it's somewhat overblown. So I think that there are legitimate national security related concerns to things like data localization. They're just not what people, including the Chinese government, including, oh, by the way, the Indian government and others, it's just not what they they say it is. The, the term national security gets thrown around here. Mm -hmm. So like what you described is certainly, it's basically like increasing a country's IT infrastructure, increasing the vulnerability of that IT infrastructure to geopolitical adversaries. And I think that there's limited evidence that that is the case. And there's certainly no compelling evidence that I have seen, and I have actually studied this in my day job, no compelling evidence that I have seen that localizing data, basically controlling everything in your country, actually has any sort of positive influence on that fear, right? right. So like, if you're, if you're worried about people getting in, like you housing all the data internally, it sounds intuitively like that may actually help, but it's, there's no compelling evidence that, that it actually does. Right. The NSA is basically like, that's cool and all if you want to put the hammer down on this company, but we're already in there. I mean, it sort of makes it sound more nefarious, I mean, than, than it actually is. I think most of the transactions, most of the data are, are pretty innocuous. They're commercial. They're not like, you know, hugely kind of national security critical. But I think personally, the bigger national, con national security concern is actually countries like China controlling their populations and using this as a, as a further way to abuse people and, and sort of curtail people's human rights. But, you know. Right. And, and I should, I should clarify that I don't mean to suggest an equivalency between, uh, you know, the, the uses to which the NSA and other agencies put U.S. cyber capabilities and what China is doing, including the human rights violations you mentioned, but also the corporate espionage, the theft of intellectual property. Um, I think there are a range of uses that the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party has for its offensive cyber capabilities that are just out of bounds in, totally. in the West more broadly. Totally. And, and the last thing I'll say about this before we move on is, is essentially we have been guilty of this over the years, too, where, you know, Chinese companies operating in the U.S., we get a little squeamish when they're saying, oh, well, we're actually going to either copy the data that's collected in the U.S., like all TikTok user data in the U.S. is going to be sent back to China mm -hmm. or it's going to be copied and sent back to China or it's going to be mirrored or something like that. And, you know, U.S. national security experts get real squeamish about that. And so that was at least one of the reasons why 
Trump tried to ban TikTok. And I, I think that while there may be some merit there, the sort of rock in the hard place that the U.S. finds itself in between is that they need to protect, not protect people's privacy, but they need, you know, there, there's fears of people's data being sent to China. But at the same time, if they curtail the cross-border flow of data, then China's going to be like, well, the U.S. is doing it. India is going to be like, well, the U.S. is doing it. Turkey's right. like, oh, yeah. The U.S. is doing it. And so, you know, it's it's sort of like this cascading thing. So, again, rock in a hard place with not a great solution, but it has resulted in uh, some sort of rocky non-IPOs for Chinese companies in the U.S. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. So uh, moving on, there's an interesting parallel, actually, between this story where it seems almost self-sabotaging for China to be kneecapping its most successful companies. But we also saw in the last week, the most far reaching effort to curb big business in the US, certainly in my lifetime, you know, I think since the Reagan era, uh, where President Biden on Friday signed an executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Uh, It was framed as a whole of government approach. The order contains 72 specific actions in his announcement in which he said, quote, capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation, end quote. The president called out three of these initiatives. One, uh, the FDA importing drugs from Canada. Two, new FDA rules allowing hearing aids to be sold over the counter. And three, improving competition for workers in the labor market. And so you you see this being pitched, including by the White House and some of its allies, as uh, somewhat of a rebuke to big tech. But reading the executive order, a few things jumped out at me. Um, and, and I'll sort of go through my initial impressions. I'll, I'll call out some specific elements of the executive order as well. We can riff on it from there. But something we've talked about before is how antitrust enforcement over the years has come to be narrowly defined by consumer harm in the form of high prices, which is really inadequate in an age where products feel free because we are the product. Uh, The policy narrative in this executive order- Again, back to data. Right. In this executive order, the policy narrative calls out the benefits of competition, not just for consumers, but for workers, entrepreneurs, farmers, and small businesses. Uh, and I think that's really important, this idea fundamentally of competition as the central differentiator to a capitalist system that must be protected for the benefit of all of these stakeholders in our society and broader goals like equity and sustainability. Super important. The narrative calls out consolidation in four industries in this order, agriculture, information technology, prescription drugs, and healthcare services. That's number three. And then telecommunications. It's not just tech. Like, let's right. be real clear. This is not just tech. Right. And, and there are some provisions that could affect big tech more than other industries. So uh, the attorney general and the Federal Trade Commission are, are called on to review their guidelines for horizontal and vertical mergers. I think some of the largest and most controversial mergers we've seen in recent years have been in tech. The FTC is called on to make new rules on data collection and surveillance. Uh, as well as unfair competition in, quote, major internet marketplaces, unquote. You know, the FCC is adopting, uh, re-adopting net neutrality rules. The Secretary of Commerce, uh, along with the Attorney General and the FTC, uh, is is charged with conducting a study of the mobile application ecosystem within the next year and making recommendations for improving competition, reducing barriers to entry, maximizing user benefit. The only place where they explicitly mention large technology firms is the Secretary of the Treasury, is charged with creating a report on the effects of large tech firms and other non-bank companies' entry into consumer finance markets, which hasn't been like a a headline news 
story area. That seems, yeah, yeah. Spend a second on that because that actually seems really wonky, but actually very important. Yeah, because I was trying to think of five or six years ago, there was a lot of chatter about every tech company becoming a bank. Google was putting a button in Gmail where you could send money uh, embedded in a message and things like that. And some of the momentum around that seems to have slowed. But I, I also think that a part of antitrust policy is, is not so much reaction, but prediction, where the companies that see the text of this order will be less likely now to make bets in that space. Um, and you may be heading off some some problems there with consolidation and, and concentration of power before they even emerge. No, it's it's super interesting. I, you probably have more, but I just, my, my main contribution to this is to point people in the direction of Instagram. Mike, I don't know if I was telling you about this, but when the president at POTUS on Instagram rolled this out, I think they've been getting a lot of criticism about, you know, hey, you've got some really interesting policies, but you're not messaging it effectively to like normal people. <laughs> and so I don't know if you saw this Instagram post, but it's essentially these two White House employees obviously sitting in front of a fancy mirror in the White House. There's these series of videos. It's like, what is Joe Biden's plan to deal with my expensive Internet? What is Joe Biden's plan to lower prescription drug prices? And then the mm-hmm. third video is what is Joe Biden's plan to fix my tractor? And I just really, really wanted to see Joe Biden like on the ground fixing that tractor. Aviators <laughs> on, like dad jeans, you know, rocking and just getting it. Cause you know, he would like, he, this is a Corvette driving, right. you know, he probably knows his way around an engine a hell of a lot better than I do, but it just, it was so funny. It's like, what well, is Joe Biden's plan to fix my tractor? That, that's actually a really telling thing, though. So a fifth of the executive order has to do with the agriculture industry. Yeah. It's a, a huge focus. And, and it's things like, you know, it's actually right up front, restrictions on third party or self-repair, right? So with tractors, right. often you have to bring a broken tractor to the dealership to get it fixed. And that, uh, you know, creates pricing power problems and flexibility problems in people's businesses. And there's no justifiable reason for it. And so um, that is a huge part. And, you know, they have provisions about identifying unfair practices in the livestock, meat and poultry industries. I think that was something that emerged uh, as a real clear and present problem in the pandemic, where you had a very small number of uh, meatpacking firms. It goes deep on reinforcing the interpretation of the Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921. This thing gets super wonky. As you might imagine. It, it does it does get super wonky and it also just sort of flies in the face of Biden is boring. I mean, I, I, I haven't studied the ins and outs of this and I probably won't. I don't I don't know, Errol, if, if everyone who's listening thinks the Packers and Stockyards Act of nineteen twenty one is as non boring as you and I do. Oh, I think that that's super exciting. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that if you look at, it's not just this, but, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure deal in quotes and the American Rescue Plan and all of these things that they are trying to do, it's sort of like, let's take every smart, well-intentioned academic slash policy wonk and give him an office in the White House and like <laughs> feed pizzas under the door for six months and let's see what comes out. Yeah, yeah. And so now we have, you know, what's Joe Biden's plan to fix my tractor coming out of it? Yeah, and, so, and I think actually there's one participant in the agriculture industry summed up really the whole order pretty well. Um, so the local Fox affiliate in North Dakota interviewed a man named Joel Opp, who's a rancher 
who said, quote, it addresses a lot of issues that have been on the minds of farmers and ranchers. It's probably down the road a while. It's going to take some work, but I think it's a step in the right direction, end quote. And I think that's actually a really great, concise take because the order itself doesn't actually change much immediately. You probably heard even in these first few provisions I was summing up, it instructs a lot of agencies, actually most of the cabinet departments to study different things or right. examine things or issue reports or in some cases, new rules in the coming months. But it, it strikes me that a lot of this actually could have been done by the agencies behind closed doors, absent of public order, meaning this is as much a statement of policy intention as it is like a true action. I think that's right. And and he, in announcing this, took on trickle-down economics head on. And, you know, some of the quotes that you said right at the beginning of this segment, I think, got to that about the sort of, you know, capitalism without competition is is bad and, and things like that. And, and I think it's, we are seeing the outlines with some of the meat on the bones of what a Biden economic theory or plan looks like. I think to extrapolate on the point that that North Dakota rancher made, it's, it's a lot of steps in the right direction. Like, it's a lot of things that people have been wondering for a long time, like, why can't government just do this, right? Things like occupational licensing, licensing restrictions, you know, that, that has been kind of a, a hot issue in nerdy circles on and off for decades, allowing over-the-counter sales of hearing aids, working to uh, import prescription drugs. From Canada, uh, yeah, exactly. From Canada, exactly. You know, there, there was actually a similar issue in the Department of Defense to what we talked about with farmers, where service members in the field are not able to repair their own equipment when it breaks in many cases right now. So getting rid of those provisions and contracts. Just a lot of things that sort of seem like, frankly, common sense. Um, now, the, there's an open question of, will it actually happen? You know, there, there are reasons of dysfunction in government and the way Washington works, why these sort of obvious things haven't happened over the years. But as a, a concrete step in the right direction, I think it's really meaningful. Well, and I think that the fact that this came out as an executive order is telling, because I think probably what's going to happen is if there is a Republican president again, either next cycle or in the future, like some of that stuff is going to get rolled back. But I think the idea is that some of it is just so no brainer that we might as well just do it and not go through the legislative route, especially given how challenging that that might be. And so I think this is sort of like a low hanging fruit plus a burgeoning economic sort of ideology that you're seeing out of this, like the framework for it, kind of the tree branches, but then some fruit actually on those branches. I, I totally agree. And I think Tonally, it's very Joe Biden, too. You know, the media can apply whatever controversy it wants and call this, you know, an action against big tech. Or, oh, I'm sure they will. Um, you know, I think Forbes called it like a government power grab. Um, you know, they, they can say whatever they want, but this ultimately is an executive order about competition, and it means what it says. Like, it goes super deep on <laughs> ensuring healthy competition across numerous industries in our economy. And even, even the tech-focused provisions aren't all punitive or focused on the headline grabbing issues, right? There's things like making sure we conduct spectrum auctions so as to avoid the concentration of spectrum holdings with any one company or, you know, limiting early termination fees for end users so that when you want to switch cell phone or internet providers, it's easier to switch. A lot of things that are sort of outside the, the mainstream media narrative that are, are really major focal points of this action. Yeah, Safe to say if we were doing this episode two years ago, 
we would not be having this conversation right now. <laughs> well, I think I think you see that reflected in among actual policymakers as well, right? Like this is more much more wonky than it is partisan, which is why you see Chuck Grassley, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, tweeting out good things about a bunch of different provisions in it. Well, because also it's going to help Iowa. Let's be real. It's going to help his people. And so last thing I'll say about this, there's a very important set of provisions that I don't think you'll hear about anywhere except news and brews. And that is that the order instructs the Secretary of Treasury, the Attorney General and the Federal Trade Commission to create a report within 120 days on the market structure and competitive conditions for the beer, wine and spirits industry. Oh, excellent. And it's actually really interesting they specifically asked them to investigate unnecessary regulations, things like bottle size or labeling or permitting that may increase costs without uh, a benefit to public health or, or tax collection or things like that, and therefore create unnecessary barriers to entry. So they're actually calling for deregulation of the beer, wine, and spirits industries. Fascinating. I wonder what the beer lobby is going to do. It's sort of like they should be for it, but they'll probably be against it because the big players have already figured out how to do the bottle size and whatever else. And so they like those barriers to entry. I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see. It's also interesting, like there's been a lot of support from the business community around the infrastructure compromise. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see how much they, I'd be surprised if they really publicly go to war over this stuff, because it's like, it's, as we said, so much, let's study this, let's propose a rule on that. As opposed to if you're a lobbyist in DC, you're probably feeling pretty good about your employment prospects for the next couple of years right now. Yeah, for sure. Like helping people navigate the new sort of regulations in the executive order. And and again, it's the fact that it's an executive order and not legislation means that like, it may get a news cycle and it'll get a mention on news and brews, but it's not going to be at the forefront. There's not going to be a debate on the floor of the Senate, you know, over this. Right. Right. So let's move on to Wembley stadium in London, England, where on Sunday, Italy beat England in the final of the Euro 2020 slash 21 soccer championship. It ended in penalties which mm-hmm. is really unfortunate for soccer fans like me, you know, a really competitive, I would say overall pretty pretty good well-fought game ending in penalties is just really sad. It's it's maybe a bit like a coin toss and I don't really like after fighting for 120 minutes. I'm really not a huge fan of coin tosses. Um, it's worth pointing out that, and, and my, some of my biases are going to be showing here, but it's worth pointing out that I think Italy should have been playing the entire overtime with 10 men mm. because of this like massive horse collar. Like the, the It's worth Googling or YouTubing or whatever the kids do these days, but basically this, this English substitute... Saka came on and pulled a great move and this the Italian captain who's like almost twice his age grabbed the back of his shirt collar and like horse collared him to the ground and like basically all WWE fans everywhere were like ooh that was a good one and it's yeah, like you, you can't a, you can't even do that in real football no you can't even do that in real football and he got a yellow card instead of a red card i mean i i I thought it was it was right at the end and people were like ah oh, it's it's fine but no I I think that that it could have made a difference honestly you know mm-hmm. when players are that tired and you're playing a man down that can be a difference but I think the real story here is not who won or lost I think it's 
kind of the reaction, which I think is mostly unfortunate with a little tinge of, of optimism at the end. And so the gist is that, you know, England lost on penalties and the last three penalties were taken by players that were 19, 21 and 23. So the future, but they were put by their coach and, in you know, the, the position to win or lose a major international championship is the first time in 55 years that England was in a final. Mm-hmm. So talk about pressure, Mike. I can't even imagine what these young men were going through. And so, and they're, and they're stars and they're really phenomenal players. They also happen to all three be black. Mm-hmm. And so predictably, but sadly, there were scenes from across the country that showed people basically very drunk, angry, like I peaked in high school types, I'm guessing, uh, throwing bottles and engaging in general hooliganism and, and destructiveness. Yeah, peaking in high school might be one of those international languages. Yeah, it is. I'm just thinking of like, well, I remember Friday Night Lights, you know, and, and <laughs> whatever the whatever the English version of Friday Night Lights is, is like right. what these people, you know, pre pre-belly. So the, there was sort of the general hooliganism, but then there was the much more, in my estimation, disturbing and again, sad but predictable reaction online that was super racist. And it was pretty vile in, in the early hours. But then the good news is that there are apparently good people on the internet. And so at the same time that this was happening, say no to racism was trending. And there were so many positive messages of support for those players over time that it drowned out all of the racist. I saw a post, you know, screen polls from Saka's Instagram account, and it was just like page after page of supportive comments. Yeah. You know, saying you're a star, we're with you for the long haul, keep your head up. It, it was sort of inspiring in that way. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're into that, look at Rashford's Instagram. He he posted this, it was sort of the three or four photos. And the first one was a, a photo of him walking away from t- having taken the penalty with his head down, just in, you know, utter shame. And then mm-hmm. they, the other ones were uh, photos he had taken of like, obviously, children sending him letters, telling him to like keep his head up. And, and it was really sort of affirming that not all people are bad. But speaking of not all people are bad, some are. And so those reactions online um, were obviously atrocious. There were some reactions by politicians that since this is news and brews and we like politics, um, I thought it might be worth mentioning. So there were actually some not horrible reactions by politicians of the ruling Conservative Party in England, including Prime Minister Boris Johnson and, and hardline Home Secretary Minister Preeti Patel, um, mm-hmm. who have, you know, in the past said some pretty atrocious things about people who want to come to England, etc. But the political quote of the day, I think, goes to former Conservative Party chairwoman Baroness Saidi Warsi, who tweeted at Patel. So like, The Home Secretary, you know, tweeted out like, this is bad. We shouldn't have racist people. I can't can't remember what the tweet was. But essentially, this former Conservative Party chairwoman said, and I quote, if we, quote, whistle and the, quote, dog reacts, we can't be shocked if it barks and bites. It's time to stop the culture wars that are feeding division. Dog whistles win votes, but destroy nations. I think that might be the drop. The Fixing It With Tweets Award of the Week. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> happy, happy about that. Maybe we stick with politics for a second. 
and actually come back across the pond to Texas. Have you been watching this story, Mike? I have. This is so interesting. Yeah. So I I remember back in the before times, like the way before times when I was in college, that this something similar happened. And so what, what happened recently, this would have been in the George W. Bush years, that essentially Texas Democrats and the Texas legislature have been in the minority since I can remember. And they they don't have a whole lot of power to do anything, but they do have this, speaking of George W. Bush, nuclear option, which is they can deny Texas Republicans from attaining a quorum, but they have to leave the state to do it. So like, I'm not sure what would happen if they didn't leave the so state. So if, if like, they don't leave like, the state, then the state police can track them down and force them to go to the Capitol, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't know whether they're going to, like, throw state legislatures in the back of a cop car and take them to the state. Like, that would be another kind of moment. And I'm sure they consider doing that. But in, in absence, uh, there is sort of this, like, legal way that they can, you know, not be there and, and force there not to be a, a quorum. And so... When I was in college in the early 2000s, they did this. They went to New Mexico and Oklahoma, and and Texas Democrats this time around actually came to D.C. Mm-hmm. And they held a press conference in like the Dulles Airport parking lot, and they're essentially coming, I think, to draw national attention to this, but also to put pressure on Senate Democrats saying like, this is not just sort of a random thing. This legislation that's being proposed in in Texas is going to set us back significantly. And so that's sort of what's happening now. Um, I've got some other takes on this, but I I don't know if you're following this story. So I have a few thoughts on this. First, just good on them. I think a few years back, there was a similar episode that happened in, I don't know if it was Oregon or Washington, but it was the other way around. It was Republicans leaving the state to prevent the Democrats from doing something and probably giving people health care or something. Um, something climate related. Or... <laughs> right. You know, actually solving problems instead of creating them. I remember just thinking at the time that that was not a level that most Democratic caucuses in state legislatures were willing to go to, to really, really pull out all the tools in your toolbox Uh, for something that's important. So first, just good on Texas Democrats for going all out on this. I think that in terms of the Texas bill itself, it's excellent strategy, right? You're already seeing Texas Republicans pulling some of the worst provisions out of the bill, changing others. You know, I think the most likely uh, scenario in my mind is probably that they reach some sort of compromise uh, and and the, the Democrats return to the state. But for that same reason, I actually think it's it's sort of a poor strategy for nationalizing this issue and trying to put pressure on Democrats in Congress and in the Senate specifically, where the whole point that Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema and the other kind of holdouts on filibuster reform are making is that we need to have both parties in the room working things out. And if the end result of this denying the quorum, denying essentially the supermajority of uh, attendance in the legislature in Texas in order to reach a compromise, if the result is a compromise, then that really kind of reinforces the pro-filibuster camp in national Mm. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That's sort of like an unintended consequence, maybe. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I mean, look, I think your idea that maybe between now and August 7th, which is when the legislative session ends in Texas, that 
you know, maybe they come to some sort of Zoom compromise and and go back to the state. I'd like to believe that that's possible. Um, I also think that it's entirely possible that these Democrats stay outside of the state through August 7th. I mean, I've already seen like online fundraisers basically trying to like raise money for for them to be able to stay out of the state. So I think that this story is far from over, but Texas Republicans seem totally unfazed, quite frankly. And there's this really excellently named uh, representative, Briscoe Kane, <laughs> from from East Houston. He's from Deer Park. Shout out Deer Park. And he said, we will eventually get it done, this special or another. And quite honestly, without sort of the national action that, that these Texas Democrats are calling for, I think that he could be right. I mean, the President mm-hmm. Biden came out with uh, uh, sort of a scathing speech today about, about voting rights. And I, I don't know how much weight he's going to throw behind the bills that are percolating in Congress. But I, I mean, this is this is a big deal and, it, and it's sort of coming to a head in Texas. And so I just wanted to make one more point about the Texas legislature, because as you know, I'm half Texan. First of all, it's not a full-time thing. So it's basically a bunch of rich people who can afford to have other jobs. And the, the second thing is that it's worth pointing out what else is on the Texas Republican agenda. So basically, they're interested in curtailing the rights of people to vote and banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools and combating perceived censorship on social media and restricting transgender athletes from competing in school sports. This seems to be a big part of their uh, agenda for this special legislative session. So after a year where Texas was second in the country in COVID cases and third in the country in COVID deaths, when a massive power crisis left 4.5 million homes and businesses without power across the state, and led to the deaths of at least 150 people. Bravo, y'all. Bravo. Like, really just solving the big problems there. Just it's, really it's unbelievable the to issues see. of our day. Like, unbelievable. Come on. Anyways, I, apparently I, I get all up up in arms about Texas. Yeah, no, well well justified. Should, should we go a little further south, though? Yeah, let's go further south. So, Mike, it was a pretty hot week in the Caribbean. And not not um, hot like this, the Pacific Northwest was last week. And not hot like the Pacific Northwest was. Although it probably, probably was because it's always hot there temperature-wise. Yeah. <laughs> probably both. But no, that lots of news coming out uh, of the Caribbean, which is not something that this time last week I thought I was going to say. But, you know, the, the Biden administration would honestly, they wouldn't say this out loud on the record, I'm sure, but... The last thing they want to be thinking about is the Caribbean in terms of policy crises. I mean, Nicaragua is oh, going full long, like, long-standing uh, U.S. foreign policy tradition of trying to not think about the Caribbean, right? Of of trying to ignore our backyard, yes. <laughs> and by backyard, I mean our backwater. But basically, like Nicaragua is going full on North Korea on us, and there's mm-hmm. like an impending catastrophe in Afghanistan, as we talked about last week. And so, like Cuba and Haiti are top of the agenda. So maybe we can just rattle through Cuba and Haiti real quick, because I think there's two very different, but sort of really intriguing stories happening in both places. So starting with Haiti, around the time that our producer Alana was working on turning this session into a podcast uh, in the middle of the night on Tuesday night last week, 
there were armed men, dozens of armed men who entered the presidential palace in Haiti in Port-au-Prince posing as DEA agents. And by the time the pod hit your feeds on Wednesday, it was clear that President Jovenel Moise was assassinated and his wife, Martine, was wounded. She's now being treated at a, at a Florida hospital. So essentially this like tactical team of dozens of heavily armed dudes infiltrated the presidential palace in Haiti and assassinated the president. Interestingly, it appears none of the president's security detail were injured, which is one question, but there's like a ton of other questions. Well, and, and like as a foreign policy person, this is something that like doesn't happen anywhere in the world, right? I think that it happens. Uh, so there are certainly military coups that happen. And right. There are coups certainly... happen and, and assassinations happen. But for a leader of a country to be assassinated in his own home with no other bloodshed, this is like shocking. Yeah, it's 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 really shocking. And like, I don't want to be insensitive here because Haiti's going through some shit right now, but it almost seemed like an action movie. And like somebody had written this script, like if you read the CNN or, or New York Times blow by blow of like what happened in the aftermath, it, I mean, it really does read like the script of an action movie. And it's which I'm sure will come out at some point, but it's it's it was really crazy. Super crazy story. But essentially, we don't know who, who did it yet. I would imagine that this is the focus of a lot of law enforcement, um, not only in this country, but in the U.S. and Colombia. There seems to be ties to Colombia somehow. The folks were heard speaking Spanish and English, and you know they definitely were, were heavily trained militarily. So, I mean- And there was some, some involvement of U.S. citizens, right? Yeah, so there was some some Haitian Americans, and then there's some some rumor of some uh, U.S. based doctor and some others being involved in this. And I think the likelihood that this was U.S. government, at least knowledgeable or sanctioned, like that's going to be percolating in this conspiracy websites. But I think that there's very little to zero credible evidence that there's any sort of like official U.S. involvement. Right. That, because because why? Right. Be because why? Actually, this just like I said, like this is not what they want, like yeah. anything but this, literally. Where where does the US level of U.S. involvement stand now? Because they've made some level of request for U.S. military support, right? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the focus of the Haitians. So first of all, we don't know who's in charge. Right, which is sort of an intriguing thing. There's, uh, there was a CNN opinion piece by Ryan Berg at CSIS, who um, he basically made very clear uh, a super unclear situation about like what's the line of succession and stuff. And I won't bore people with that. We'll link that in the notes. I mean, it's 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 really fascinating. There's constitutional crises. There's you know COVID deaths. It's just like this whole saga. But yeah, I mean, whoever is in charge, there is still a military. There is still a police. They still have a chain of command and they have asked for reinforcements. They seem to be sort of hoping and, and focusing on restoring order or maintaining some order, which by the way, there wasn't a whole lot of order before this. There was a lot of disgruntled people and rightly so. Uh, Haiti's been basically about 60% of Haitians live on less than $2 a day. And it's consistently like the poorest country in our, in our Western hemisphere. I mean, there's certainly lots of reasons for people to be unhappy. And this, I think there's fears that this could be kind of the spark that leads everything to get worse, which like people who watch Haiti are 
have for years been like, how much worse can it get? Mm. I hope I'm wrong, but I think we might be about to find out. Wow. Moving on. So let's move to Cuba, where on Sunday, I've never seen anything like this, Mike. So I, I haven't been alive forever. And certainly in my lifetime, I don't recall seeing what I saw taking place in, in Cuba on Sunday. Thousands of people took to the streets in over 50 Cuban towns and cities. They were essentially protesting sort of a lack of services, which is if you study state fragility and, and other things, you know, that, that spark things like the Arab Spring, a lot of it comes down to jobs and power outages and lack of food and, you know, inability to contain COVID and other things. And so, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, I think this, I would love to on a future episode, just kind of have you go like deeper on some of these issues of, of causes of fragility, because we see it come up every single time over and over again. any international crisis, right? It's some level of corruption, some level of inability to provide services and incompetency in government. Yeah. And it, it should be, it should be so easy. It's like sort of the, the Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs that a people have from their government that are just so often neglected. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the problem is the government is also people and people are mm -hmm. just the worst. So, <laughs> but yes, we can delve into that. You but hear, look, that, hear I, that future robot overlords? <laughs> look, I think the Cuban thing is really interesting, not only because of its unprecedented nature, but in the fact that it sort of puts, again, the Biden administration in a position to comment on something that they're not ready to comment on. Uh, they're sort of, quote unquote, reviewing the Cuba strategy, but it's you know, this is going to throw a serious wrench in, you know, the Obama administration had normalized uh, diplomatic relations and then Trump ended that. And there was some talk of candidate Biden of going back to some, you know, not full diplomatic connections, but there was some talk of, of sort of normalizing-ish. And I think that this is going to be basically what happened is after Sunday, there was almost predictably on Monday, there was a huge crackdown. And so I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be really hard for, for the Biden administration. The, the crackdown is kind of sad and predictable. And again, sort of goes to the exacerbation of, you know, fragility in a place like Cuba, especially when people don't have stuff to eat and power and stuff. But I think that there are these like two really uniquely Cuban parts of this that I thought were, were worth pointing out. First of all, that this was like the Arab Spring. A lot of this organization was organic and happened online via apps and, and everything. Unfortunately, in Cuba, they only have 3G. And mm. so it, it's sort of like if you talk to people who have been to Cuba, they're like, oh, it's like stepping back in time. There's all these old vehicles and, you know, everybody's out and dancing, whatever. And so it's like, congratulations, Cuba, you have now arrived in the early 2000s now that you have 3G. Right. And then there was this this sort of, again, very uniquely Cuba like a lot of this was the feelings of the protesters and the, you know, the dancing in the street and the protesting was, was kind of done to the tune of this reggaeton song called Patria y Vida. Essentially, this song is what it has been kind of driving and motivating people. Um, and it's, it's a take on a old kind of revolutionary song about Patria and, and Muerte. So like country and, and death. And now it's sort of the take is con uh, country and life. It's I, I recommend everyone going and listening to it and, and being 
being motivated. How much agency does the U.S. have in supporting these people or advocating for change in the situation, given that we had normalized relations under Obama, Trump rolled that back, and we, we don't really have a diplomatic presence in the country now? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is not a whole lot. I think that there are ways in places like Cuba, there are ways that the U.S. can provide democracy assistance and, and support to civil society. And there are ways that there are sort of groups in Florida that have connections to that, that have connections to, you know, back home in Cuba that you can support. And so I think it's going to be, un unfortunately, a little bit more on the sort of grassroots support to the burgeoning democratic foundations, as opposed to like, we, the United States are going to so speak, speaking, do something. Speaking of going like back that. in time, we basically have the same set of tools we had under Kennedy. Basically, we had the same set of tools. And since we've isolated them economically already, like there's really nothing else we can do on the economic side. And we're sure as hell not going to send troops down there. So like, your your toolkit is is fairly limited from like a sort of international policy perspective. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's close with a domestic story. So CPAC, sure. the Conservative Political Action Conference, happened over the weekend. Uh, we're not going to cover it in detail because it's sad and dumb. Pod Save America spent a lot of time on it in the episode that came out Monday of this week. I recommend starting there for a Cliff Notes version. I'll just say like I saw this story hit over the weekend. And I was like, didn't we just have a CPAC like four months I ago? I thought the same thing. <laughs> the answer is yes, we did in <laughs> okay, February of this year. Not crazy. And like, are these fucking CPACs going to start multiplying like gremlins when they get wet? Or like, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the short answer is yes. <laughs> I did in, in um, going down like a very shallow rabbit hole to get the basics on CPAC without like spending too much time on what actually happened there. You should uh, probably clear your cookies. <laughs> found one fun piece of CPAC trivia, which is, do you know who has won the most CPAC straw polls of anyone in history? I'm going to go with Donald Trump. It would be Utah Senator Mitt Romney. The same Mitt Romney who was uh, barred from attending another recent CPAC because the organizers couldn't guarantee his personal safety after he didn't yeah. support Trump on impeachment. Yeah. Very, very telling on uh, kind of the conservative movement's abandonment of any ideas underpinning their actions and uh, move toward total cult of personality. Wow. That's all I have to say about that. With that light note about CPAC, Mike, what do you think? I think we fixed it this time. I think we fixed like a lot of things today. <laughs> Look, man, great talking to you. We'll, we'll see you next week. This was fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabuke. Our producer is Alana Nevins. News and Brews recordings happen live each Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Join the live conversation on Green Room or listen to the podcast available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.